Each day when I walk out of our house across the street, I'm reminded of the power of storms and of rain and wind and all of that. Some of you, if you've looked across the street recently, you know that in the last storm that we had on July 3rd, as my family and I were hunkered down over here in my office because we simply were, were not able to, to be in the house at that time, we happened to be over here, we, we went back home to this huge limb that had fallen out of the tree in the side of the backyard and it knocked part of the fence down and all of that. And we're in the process of getting all that settled and fixed and all, but it's amazing what a storm can do. That storm not only did that, but blew a lot of the stuff, our kids' toys and all we had in the backyard, just scattered them everywhere. It looked like the kids had been playing. You know, it was no big deal. The wind and the kids, they all do the same thing, have the same effect, destruction, you know. And so, anyways, you ought to see our house on a regular basis. We, you know, we have three. And Nora, who is now almost two, is just, she doesn't understand really the meaning of the word no yet. And so we're, we're working on that. And so it's just, you know, throwing stuff anyway. So she's like the wind. How about that? It's a good example. So, Anyway, you, you probably know as well as I do that storms and all you've experienced have, have tremendous capabilities. In the year that we've lived here, we have seen the remnants of Hurricane Ike, and that was very interesting to say the least. Then we had that incredible ice storm, which some of us are probably still trying to recover from, limbs and so on down everywhere. And we've had tons of rain. We've had periods of drought. It's just been odd. And then in July, on July 3rd, we had this incredible storm that came through, and, and we know the power of storms. And, and certainly, you've probably seen pictures of other places where weather has hit, and hurricanes and tornadoes and floods and so on, and it's extremely powerful, obviously. And, and figuratively speaking, you know as well as I do that we all face certain storms in life, certain floods and rains and winds and so on that come, and they test us. They prove whether we are strong or whether we are weak. They reveal our strengths and weaknesses quite often. And and the Bible also speaks not only of just storms that come into our lives on an everyday basis, but ultimately the test that we will all face one day when we stand before God in judgment. And so as we get to the close today of the Sermon on the Mount that we've been looking at for the last several weeks, Jesus will give us some help on how to handle the storms of life that we endure now and ultimately how to be safe in the test that will come in the judgment of God one day. And so we're finishing this series today. And and I, for some of you that have thought this could not get over fast enough, today's your day. You can celebrate on the way out. For others, and for me, it's kind of like we're, we're saying goodbye to a close friend. We've been with this friend now, the Sermon on the Mount, for eight weeks, for two months. And I have learned a tremendous amount. I hope that I've done justice to pass it on to you. But the, the Scripture says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes that the Scripture is extremely valuable and beneficial. And he says it's, it's beneficial because it can teach us. And over the last eight weeks, we certainly have been taught from God's Word what's right and what's wrong. And Paul also says that the Scripture sometimes rebukes us, which means that it tells us where we've gone wrong. He says, wait a minute, you're going down the wrong path. Certainly, if you have been paying attention, uh, as I have, as best I can, I have been sort of rebuked from time to time by these passages of Scripture to tell me, wait a minute, I'm going the wrong direction, turn around and go the other way. Paul also says that it's good for, Scripture is good for correcting, which means to set things back up that have fallen over. And even though sometimes the Scripture rebukes us, sort of gets in our face a little bit, it, it always helps us get back on our feet. And we see how that has happened over the last several weeks. And also, Paul says the Scripture is valuable for training and righteousness, helping you to know what's the next step to take. What do I do from here? 
And the Sermon on the Mount not only is extremely theological in the sense that it gives you an idea and a view of God, but it's also very practical. It shows you the next steps to take. And so we're going to get one final teaching, one final challenge from this particular passage of Scripture this morning. As I've reminded you each week, and if you are just now maybe with us for the first time in this series, this is not just any ordinary sermon. This is the greatest sermon ever. This is not just an ordinary preacher. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords telling us what his kingdom is all about. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus, right after he was baptized, right after he was tempted, begins to preach, the Bible says, saying, repent for the kingdom of God is near. He was telling folks, look, the kingdom of God is here. The spiritual kingdom of God is being ushered in. It's time to turn your life around and get on board with what I'm doing. Jesus was saying that to them. Then a few verses later, verse 23 of chapter 4, Matthew records that Jesus went around to their temples, their synagogues, their cities, and he was preaching the good news of the kingdom. And so the only person that can tell the terms of the kingdom is the king. And so we see in the first verse of chapter 5 where Jesus sits down, which in that day was a position of authority, essentially sitting on his throne to lay out the terms of his kingdom. And so we see the very end of that today. If you've got your Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. We are focused today. You'll see most of the verses that I refer to on the screen behind me. So if you didn't bring a Bible and you're okay, or if your version's a little bit different and it maybe is confusing, then you can follow along on the screen. Let's look at these verses today as we begin. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man, as some versions say, a wise man, who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse, because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house. And it collapsed, and its collapse was great. For some, this is a familiar passage of Scripture. You may have sung a song as a kid. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. The rains came and all that, and the house came tumbling down. Maybe you know it. Maybe this is new to you. But either way, I want you to know this is far beyond a Sunday school lesson. This is Jesus giving a summary of what this entire sermon is to be about. He is sort of bringing it to a close, and he completes his thoughts. And it's right after this, in verses 28 to 29, where Matthew records that the crowds were astonished at his teaching. This is no ordinary person giving an ordinary sermon. This is not me standing before you. This is Jesus standing before us. This is absolutely, the Bible says, astonishing and with power and authority. And so Jesus here, as I said, sort of sums up what he's been talking about. And if you've got your bulletin and want to follow along, you can take some notes there on the back. And you'll see as we go through this, I'll just kind of follow along through the passage of Scripture. And maybe that's something you can refer to later on in the week if you want to go back and study this passage a little bit more in depth. But here's how he sums it up. Basically, Jesus gives us this principle. First of all, it's not about what you know. In summary, Jesus says, it's not about what you know. In fact, though knowledge is important, he says it's about what you do because of what you know. So knowledge is not unimportant, but it's not about what you know. It's about what you do because of what you know. And and, and when Jesus says everyone who hears these words of mine, understand he was talking not only to his disciples but to a large crowd. 
that had gathered to listen to him. So everybody there heard. And when he says the word, everyone who hears, that word hears means they understood, they comprehended, they got it. It wasn't something they just sort of listened to passively. It was something they, they intently listened to. They understood it. They got it. They figured out, here's what he's talking about. He made it clear to them. And so not, not anyone had the excuse to say, well, I, don't, I just don't get it. I don't understand. Everybody there, Jesus says, everyone who hears, everyone who understands, they all knew what Jesus said. And the same is true for most of us, if not all of us here today. That most, if not all, know in general what the Bible says as to how we receive salvation and as a result how we should live. Most of us know. Particularly if you've been able to be here or have listened to the sermons maybe on CD or online or whatever it may be, you've known the very words that Jesus is referring to in these verses over the last several weeks, Matthew 5 through 7, these words of mine. We all know to an extent. So Jesus says, though, he doesn't stop with saying, well, it's great just to know. That's enough. Just know what I've said. He says the wise person does something about what they know, but the foolish person knows and does nothing. And certainly you are aware, and this is not news to you, that our society is full of people who have lots of knowledge but don't do anything with it. Full of people. Don't elbow anybody, okay? We have some people in here that probably have lots of what we would call useless knowledge. We know a lot of stuff, but it doesn't do anything for us. We don't do anything with it. We have probably a lot of smart people in this room who have not achieved to the level that everybody thought they would because they didn't do anything with what they know. You know, we know a lot of things, but sometimes we don't do anything as a result. You know, we know we ought to eat right. Let's get personal for a second. We know that we ought to eat right. Here we go. All right. Toes are going to, you know, get a little stepped on, I guess, mine too. But we know we ought to eat right. But you know when you're driving down the road, you start smelling that food kind of emanating from the fast food restaurant. Somehow your car just goes right in there. And you're thinking, how did I wind up in the drive-thru? What's going on? I'm standing in line. And you just kind of shuffle through with everybody else. Here we go. And, boy, you're standing there thinking, ah, you know, I know I really shouldn't eat this junk, you know. But, boy, that smells good. And, Man, well, that tastes good too. I forget it. I'm going to eat it. You know, you've been there. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, we, we do. We know some things that we probably don't act on. We know we ought to eat a balanced diet of mostly fruits and vegetables and that sort of thing. The government recommends this or that. Some of you may have been in the hospital before and they've told you, hey, you need to eat this stuff or whatever. You know, we know that, but sometimes we don't really act on it. We know we ought to exercise on a regular basis. Again, getting personal. But. How many of us act on what we know? Well, it's hard sometimes. We know that exercise is going to strengthen our heart, help our lungs, give us stronger muscles and bones and all that kind of stuff, just make us generally healthy. But it's hard sometimes to act on what we know. We know that there are certain things that if we do them over time, they'll kill us. We know that there are certain things that will put us in danger, certain things that we do that will put other people in danger. We know those things, and yet our society is full of people who know things but don't act on them. Jesus says it's not enough just to know. He said, if you know and don't do, then you're foolish, the Bible says. Knowing is just half the equation. Because it's about what you do because of what you know. And I want to say this to you because I think this is a temptation for many of us. I want to encourage you not to be impressed with somebody who simply knows about the Bible. There are lots of people, and I know you've come into contact with these kind of folks before. They know a lot about the Bible. I mean, they can rattle off Scripture, and they know the stories, and they seem to be able to fit it all together, and they understand it. And you just think, my goodness, how do they know so much about the Bible? But they don't do anything with it. 
They simply talk a good game. And then maybe when you see them in a different setting other than church or when the Bible happens to be brought up, they don't seem to live it out. I want to say, don't be impressed with folks who just know the Bible. Be impressed with, pattern your life after, do the best to emulate people who live it out. Because it's not about just what you know. You realize that Satan knows more about the Bible than any of us? Impressed with him? Follow him? He knows more than we do. Some of you are thinking, wait a minute, hold on. You remember how he tempted Jesus? What did he tempt him with? Scripture over and over again. He came at it. He knows it. So it's not about what you know. It's about what you do because of what you know. Jesus says those who know and don't act are foolish, but those who want to live it out are wise, catch this, wise to know as much of it as possible. This is no excuse for ignorance of the Bible, none whatsoever. To just say, well, I'm just living it out. I'm doing the best I can. Those who want to live it out are wise to know as much as possible. It's your lifeblood. It's what you ought to know. The contrast here Jesus gives is between two people who we think, well, they're just completely different. I mean, there's just one person who's just running the other way and one person who's just always at the feet of Jesus. In fact, what he's contrasting is two people who on the outside probably appear pretty similar. They both built a house. They're both living. In fact, they, they, they seem to live fairly close to one another. They both got hit by a storm, maybe the same storm. They may be people who both profess themselves to be Christians. They may go to the same church. They may listen to the same sermons. They actually may both read the Bible or pray from time to time. But the difference is that one acts on what he knows and the other does not. And so the contrast here can be a little bit subtle. But Jesus, in essence, is saying that mere intellectual knowledge is no substitute for obedience. We can say, well, I I know. Yeah, I know. I, I get it. I know. Leave me alone. I understand. I know. But that's not a substitute for actually doing what we know. Just like last week, we looked at the idea of live it, don't just say it. This week, the idea basically is live it, don't just know it. And so Jesus gives us here the way that he will then lay out for us the way to lay a solid foundation for our lives. Doing what you know, Jesus says, establishes a solid foundation. We see the difference between the two foundations in these verses. And then some characteristics Jesus gives us of the two foundations you'll see there on the back of your bulletin. First of all, a solid foundation is built on Jesus alone. Built on Jesus alone. What does he say? Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, talking about himself. Therefore, not, not, therefore it's not everyone who goes to college and gathers a little bit of information. Everyone who sits in church on a weekly basis and eh, kind of listen from time to time. No, everyone who hears these words of mine, he says... He is the rock. He is the foundation. The Scripture harps on that over and over and over again. What does the song say? On Christ the solid rock I stand. Hebrews says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. There are two ideas to think about here when it comes to this rock. Some of you are thinking, now, what does this rock mean? What kind of foundation are we talking about? Those of you that have a construction background or mindset, your wheels are spinning. You're thinking, how is he going to explain all this? And how do I need to correct him after the service is over? Because he doesn't know what he's talking about with foundations. You're probably right, okay? The only thing I know about a foundation is that most houses sit on one. That's about it. So anyway, but understand that the biblical term here, when he says build a house on the rock, you, you basically have two ideas you can think of. And one is probably a little, little bit closer to what the Bible's talking about, but the other gives us a pretty good idea, too. There are two ideas. One is, is bedrock, rock deep within the ground that you drive the pillars of the house into. 
way down as deep as you can. The other idea, which is maybe a little bit closer to what the Bible is actually talking about, is digging into the side of a, of a rock, a cliff, and kind of carving out for yourself a place of protection, almost like a cave. And so you have these two different ideas here. Both of those are similar in the fact that the bedrock never moves. You drive pillars of a house or a building or something into that, it's not really going anywhere. The same is true of the cave. You are protected as you dig yourself into that. It never moves. It never shifts. It keeps the house steady. And Jesus explains that every other foundation is like sand. These other foundations are things not built on Jesus alone, maybe built on human opinion. Just kind of how you feel that day, what you're thinking about, the next thing that comes into your mind from watching daytime television over and over and over again and listening to all the different psychologists that I'm sure that we've bought into from time to time. Popular opinion as it sways us back and forth or just our attitudes, what we think is right or so on. All those things are always shifting and changing. They're just like sand. And one day, the Bible says they will collapse and we'll be left with nothing unless we have rooted ourselves in Jesus Christ. That sand foundation is built on self-will. I'm going to do what I want to do. It's built on self-fulfillment. I'm going to make sure that my life is what I want it to be. It's built on self-purpose. I'm going to get it done. It's built on self-sufficiency. I'll take care of myself. It's built on self-satisfaction and ultimately on self-righteousness. I'll earn my way to God. You just watch. I'll be good enough. Maybe we don't say it that way, but sometimes our lives are built on the foundation of self. And Jesus says any other foundation but his words, any other foundation but him is sinking sand, the song says. All other ground is sinking sand. It's on Christ alone or it's sinking sand. On ourselves, eventually it will collapse. And so a firm foundation is built on Jesus alone, and so we have to ask the question, how... How are our foundations? Think about it just for a second. Which do you rely more on, yourself or on Jesus? That's a tough question. Some days it's probably self. Some days it's probably Jesus. Maybe a little bit of mix on certain days. But what is the general foundation of your life? What are you building on? Are you driving your life deep down into the bedrock, carving into the side of that cliff and anchoring yourself to Jesus? Or is it something else? He says a solid foundation is built on Jesus alone. But not only that, but you think about building a foundation. A solid foundation is also hard work. It's hard work. It's not something that is necessarily easy. I've thought of this. Why is it that people, if they know that ultimately, and as we have heard today, if we read the Scripture and know, I build my life on anything but Jesus Christ, one day, one day, be it here or in eternity, I'm going to fall apart. Why would we not lay a solid foundation? One reason is it's just hard. It's just hard. And sometimes as humans, we don't like things that are hard to do. We like the easy way. We like to try to get by with as little as possible. In Luke chapter 6, you write the reference down. We're not going to turn there. Luke chapter 6, verse 48, he, Jesus is, uh, Luke records it, uh, Jesus giving this sermon as well. And he says that the wise man dug deep. He didn't just kind of pick at the ground a little bit and say, well, that's good enough. He dug deep. And so it's hard work. You know, no one sees, for the most part, the foundation that you're laying in your life. So it can almost seem to be sort of boring and unimportant and and sort of not glamorous. Well, you know, people who do foundation work are probably not as revered as the folks who come in and do the finish work to make everything just look exactly the way it's supposed to. 
The people who do foundation work are long forgotten after the house goes up. Think about it. You don't sit and think, man, that's an incredible foundation. My goodness. I've never seen a foundation like that. You look at the house and say, that's beautiful. Isn't that incredible? I wonder who did that work. You don't see the foundation. Often it's easy to overlook. It takes patience to do it right. You probably have seen, I know I have, there's a neighborhood in Louisville where a friend of mine lived where the foundation was not set right. And the house, huge house, probably three or $400,000 house, sitting on the side of a hill, and it cracked in half because the foundation was not good enough. They almost lost half the house. Amazing. No mudslide, no earthquake, just a bad foundation. And so it takes patience to do it right. And I think one of the biggest reasons maybe that folks don't lay a solid foundation is because it doesn't produce always immediate results. We are a shortcut society. Some of you will drive from here to wherever you're going and never get on a main road. You just shortcuts all over the place. And it may or may not get you there any faster, but you think it does. You're the shortcut king or queen. You know them all. Some of you have lived here forever. I went riding around one day with Eddie Clyde Hale. <laughs> Eddie Clyde is our, is our magistrate. Some of you know that. We, we, uh, we were riding around one day, and, and he said, let me show you around a little bit. I'm telling you what, there's no way I could find where he took me. And it ain't that far. There's no way. We were on this road and that road. I'm just, I told him, I said, I'm glad Nancy's not with us because she'd have her head out the window. She'd be car sick right now. I said, we couldn't handle it. But we, I have no idea. He, he knows the shortcuts. But the truth is, a lot of times in life, shortcuts don't help us out. Because shortcuts, when we take them in life, we just throw something together and say, well, you know, it looks good enough on the outside. Hey, that, that's good. And, and, and we can fool a lot of people. We can fool ourselves into thinking that our house, so to speak, our life, is exactly the way it ought to be. Well, I showed up at church. Those people were friendly to me. They seemed to like me pretty good. I get along with the pastor. Hey, must be okay with God. My, you know, I do enough of the right things. You know, I, nothing really bad has happened. And, and we can convince ourselves that we've taken shortcuts and everything's okay. But the Bible says that laying a foundation is hard work. And Jesus says, though it's hard work, it's worth it. I'll never forget that in 1997... When I was a junior in college, I, uh, haven't, I haven't talked about baseball in a long time. It's been a while. I've been itching to get it back in, but here we are. I was a junior in college, and I was given two tickets to a Major League Baseball playoff game between the Atlanta Braves and the Florida Marlins. I had never been to a, to a playoff game. And my buddy, Harv, was a good friend of mine, and Harv was a huge Atlanta Braves fan. Now, understand, he's from Kentucky, but back you know, in the 80s, the Braves were the only team on television. And they weren't very good, but they, it was them or the Cubs. And you know how, to, you know, nobody picks the Cubs, of course, around here. I'll say that here. But anyway, and so, so he was a Braves fan. He'd never been to a game before. And I said, Harv, I said, I want you to go to this game with me. We had tickets that were 14 rows behind home plate. Unbelievable. So I, I'm, in, I'm in heaven, you know. And so we leave Murray. We drive to Atlanta. We get there early. And Harv and I, we, we love to watch batting practice and all the guys warm up and all that kind of stuff. And so we get there, and we're out in left field trying to catch a home run ball or something during batting practice. And Harv taps me. He says, hey, so look at that. And so we look down in left field, and there are two guys standing there. And, and one was the best starting pitcher in the game at the time. His name was Kevin Brown. The other was the best relief pitcher in the game at the time. His name was Rob Nen. They both played for the Marlins. And Harv said, look what they're doing. And they weren't out goofing around and throwing stuff at each other and messing around and goofing off and all that kind of stuff. What they were doing was they were each, some of you will see, I'm too short, this just doesn't work, but they were down on one knee. And they were throwing the ball back and forth to each other, just like this, and catching it. And mind you, it's October. 
It's the end of the season. It's not spring training when they're trying to get ready. Here they are down on one knee doing fundamental pitching work over and over and over during all of batting practice. And Harv looked at me, and we, and I looked at him, and we didn't have to say anything. We thought, if those guys know the importance of doing fundamental work in October when they're in the playoffs, good grief, we better get to work back in Murray. We better do something. Those guys knew the importance of it. When I became a baseball coach and began to do a lot of lessons and different things like that, two things that I always went back to. One, when I was teaching pitchers, I would always go back to knee drills and tell those guys, if you'll learn these fundamental things right now, if you'll do this over and over and over and over again, then it'll set it in and you won't have to worry about that stuff anymore. It'll become just sort of second nature to you. And so we do knee drills over and over. And another thing we do is we'd work on a tee. Some of you think you, you coached in high school and you, you worked with guys on a tee and that for tee ballers, certainly it is, but players know that if you can over and over and over again, fundamentally hit the ball off the tee every single time the right way, swing it over and over and over every single time, they know that eventually as they move up to the ball being thrown to them, that over time those things they worked on in the tee become second nature. Great players, great coaches know the value and the power of fundamental drills over and over over again. Now, I thought about actually hitting a ball today, but I thought, well, it wouldn't be good. You know, I might miss it or I might not miss it, and somebody might pay for that, and so I didn't want to do that. But anyway, but the truth is this. Those who know the value of fundamentals do them over and over and over again. Those guys in the playoffs were doing just basic fundamental drills that I did when I was a freshman in high school. Guys in the pros will still hit off tees because they know that's where the fundamentals are laid in. That's where the foundation is set. Those who last in life, those who really make it and are successful, particularly as it relates to the Christian life, they do the the little things consistently well. The things that nobody sees, they do those. They hear the words of Jesus and they put them into practice every single time they can. Even when things are going well, you know that's often the hardest time to do it? You have not experiencing any trouble. There's no storm in my life. No big deal. I just kind of coast for a while. Even when things are going well, those who will endure during the storms have laid the foundation, even when things are going well, even when nobody is watching. And so laying a foundation is hard, but it's worth it. Doing those drills over and over as a baseball player is not easy, but it's worth it. And so laying a foundation, Jesus shows us, is built on him alone. It's hard work. And it's also revealed under stress. It's revealed under stress. Uh, Look with me again at verse 25. Jesus says, The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. In verse 27, The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, the one on the sand, and it collapsed. And great, or its collapse rather, was great. So it's revealed under stress. The rains came, the the rivers rose, the winds blew. The truth is your life is going to be tested. You say, well, no joke. You don't even know me. Yeah, I'm with you. You could probably stand up and we could all just go around the room and say, hey, tell me the last challenge you faced in your life. And we could probably be here all week long sitting and listening to the incredible tests and incredible challenges that we've faced. 
Some of you have recently gone through that. Some of you look back on your life and say, oh, man, I don't want to go through that again. Some of you are in the middle of it right now. And you know your life will be tested. Your life will be challenged. And it's in the midst of those hard times, and you can attest to this too, where your strength or your weakness is revealed. Now think about it. Think about the last big test or challenge you had in your life or the, the one that just tops them all. And you probably saw where some strength was revealed that maybe you didn't know was there. Or you probably saw some weakness that was revealed that you thought, oh, I wish I weren't weak in that area. But the truth is those things, they threaten to sweep you away just like the house off the foundation. When Jesus talks about the winds, he's talking about just the emblem of instability, changing opinion, just whatever is the popular way to think, just beating against you. The truth is you'll be attacked by problems in your life and you'll be attacked by false teaching, false thinking. And what will be the result? Stuff of life is coming. I wish I could tell you today that if you'll give your life to Jesus and you'll live for him each and every moment, that everything you've ever wanted will be right at your fingertips. You'll never face another problem. You'll never face an ounce of discouragement. There's no depression whatsoever. There's never going to be another hardship. You're not going to face anything that you don't want to face. I wish I could tell you that. But the Bible says that the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. John 16:33 says that in this world you will have trouble. So the storms of life, the stuff of life is coming. And it will reveal the type of foundation that you and I have been building in our lives. And so we see the importance of a firm and solid foundation. Maybe if you're not convinced about that important foundation, building it on Jesus Christ alone, consider this. Jesus implies here that a solid foundation prevents collapse now and for eternity. A solid foundation prevents collapse now and for eternity. Those who are anchored deep in Jesus, those who have dug deep into that bedrock or carved deep into that cave, they're certainly going to face storms, but it's because of Jesus that they'll still be standing when the storm is over and only because of him. And the opposite of that is true, that those who have not anchored their lives in Jesus Christ they will likely either fall or run away here on earth. And one day, the Bible says, that they will ultimately fail the test of God's judgment and spend eternity apart from Him. Those who have anchored their lives in Jesus will withstand the storms of life as best we can and ultimately will pass the test of God's judgment because we have placed our trust in Jesus Christ. And just like last week, Jesus gives us here an incredibly helpful but incredibly challenging truth. And he shows us through all of this that the mark of a true believer is this. The mark of a true believer is to know God's Word and do what it says. I wish I could be more profound. I wish I could be more awe-inspiring. But it's pretty simple. Jesus says, whoever hears these words of mine and acts on them, It's like the wise man building his house on the rock. The mark of a true believer is not just what you know, but what you do because of what you know. Know the Word of God and do what it says. Some may accuse of saying, well, you're just reading into that a little bit. Turn to James chapter 1. James is over in the New Testament, the latter third of the New Testament. You'll see these verses on the screen behind me if you don't want to turn there, no problem. 
James says, this is the brother of Jesus speaking, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And then in verse 23, because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man looking in his face in a mirror, for he looks at himself, goes away, and right away forgets what kind of man he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who acts. This person will be blessed because of what he does. Be a doer, not just a hearer. James says, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. John really cuts to the chase here. doesn't give us a whole lot of wiggle room. He says, this is how we are sure that we have come to know him. Some of you would say, I have some doubts. I really want to know. Here it is. This is how we are sure that we have come to know him, by keeping his commands, doing what he says. The one who says, I have come to know, this is a powerful and strong and sort of in-your-face verse. The one who says, I have come to know him without keeping his commands is what? A liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is perfected. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Mere intellectual knowledge is not going to cut it. The Bible says over and over as a recurring theme, it's not just about what you know, it's about what you do because of what you know. Those who truly know Jesus will have a life that is patterned in doing what he says, walking as he walked. Think about it in the context of what we've looked at over the last several weeks. Consider the words of Jesus and the overarching principles that we've looked at. Here they are. Eight different principles that we have, that we have seen. First is this. These are not going to be on the screen, so you don't have to write all these down. Come to God on His terms. Realize that I can't do anything to earn my way to God. I simply have to humble myself, submit to Him, and receive His grace and mercy and forgiveness, or I've got nothing. That's it. I come to Him empty-handed. I can't come to him with all my good stuff and say, hey, God, does this cut it? He says, no, nothing cuts it. You are a sinner. But I love you, and I've made a way for you to get to me. And he says, so come to me on my terms. Come through my son, Jesus. That's what he says, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Then he gives us our function. Once we're in the kingdom, here's what we are to do. Assume, always assume you are the only godly influence for every situation in person. Be salt and light. And then he went on to say, be absolutely devoted to Jesus inside and out. A few weeks ago, we saw that the idea that even in our religious acts of prayer and of fasting and of giving, we are to die to the desire for human approval, to view God as the only spectator that matters, and then to remember God is waiting to reward, and he never misses an opportunity. A couple of weeks ago, we saw that God's people are to be consumed not by material stuff, not by how we're going to be taken care of, but be consumed by nothing but God's kingdom, wanting Him to get full authority in every part of our life and His, His righteousness, wanting to live just like Him. Two weeks ago, we saw that we are to figure out what, what we would want others to do for us in every situation, then take the initiative and start doing that for other people. And last week, we saw the very simple principle. Live it, don't just say it. And think about it. What if, what if over the last eight weeks, and some of you have done this, what if we took those things to heart and we said, those are the principles, that's God's word, that's what Jesus said to do, and I'm going to do it. Some of you have done that, and you've seen your life be driven deeper into that solid foundation. You, you've seen yourself draw closer to the Lord. You've seen yourself act and change and do different things that you never thought you would do, but it's because you've begun to put God's word into practice. What if for a period of time, an extended period of time, you made the effort to know God's Word and do what it says. 
Some of you have put your bulletins away. I should have warned you. I'd like for you to get that back out real quick. I used to be a school teacher, and I always knew that <clears throat> when the paper started to shuffle, it didn't matter if I was done or not, class was over. So, so get them back out. You can shuffle them again here in just a second, okay? I want you to write just somewhere on the, on the paper, maybe down toward the bottom or something. I, leave some space to write something next to each one of these. I want you to write the number 30 three different times. A 30, then another 30, and then another 30. Stack them on top of one another, write them side by side, whatever you want to do. Just leave some room and you can kind of put something there. What if for an extended period of time you knew God's word or, or sought to know it and did what it said? Here's what I want you to do. Next to the first 30, write days, 30 days. So for the next 30 days, today's August 2nd. we got roughly 30 days or so left in this month, give or take. So for 30 days, beside the next 30, write minutes per day, 30 minutes a day. So for the next 30 days, for 30 minutes a day, here's the challenge. Read God's Word and spend some time in prayer. You're thinking, 30 minutes, holy cow, you don't know. I mean, I struggle to get up and be on time. Find 30 minutes somewhere. If it's not 30 minutes... All at once, do 15 minutes at a time. 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes in the evening, whatever you got, okay? Shoot for 30 minutes to read the Bible and just pray through it. Maybe you'd pray for the needs in your life. You say, man, that's going to take 30 minutes. Fine, you got 30 minutes, all right? Maybe you'd pray for somebody else. You think, that, oh, golly, you don't know my family. That'd take me an hour and 30 minutes. Fine, okay? You're not limited to 30 minutes. Maybe you've got situations you just know, hey, I'm, I'm going to encounter this person today. That's okay. That's at least seven and a half minutes of prayer. Fine. See how it just fills up. Okay, you've got it. But for 30 minutes, read the Bible, spend some time in prayer. Where do I start reading the Bible? There's all kinds of different places to start. I would encourage you probably not to start in, say, Leviticus um, or Numbers or something like that. Probably going to get a little bogged down there. Okay, but I would encourage you maybe start in Proverbs. Maybe start in the book of John. Maybe in First John. Somewhere like that, start and begin to read. And then the last 30 is this. Every 30 minutes, okay? Every 30 minutes. So you just got to go on the other side of the 30 now. Every 30 minutes, somehow during your waking hours, when you are awake, I'm not, I don't want you to get up every 30 minutes, okay? Because nobody's going to be happy if that happens. And you think, you know, what are you trying to get us to do? Every 30 minutes, have some sort of reminder. Maybe your watch can beat. Maybe you've got a reminder on your computer. Maybe you look at a clock and you just know at the top and the bottom of every hour, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to spend just a, a few seconds in prayer saying, God, remind me of what I read today. Remind me of what I read yesterday. And I want to put it into practice. Lord, help me to handle what's coming up in the next 30 minutes. God, I'm available to you. I'm listening. Help me. Every 30 minutes, just whisper a quick prayer like that to be in consistent communication with God. And the whole purpose is to know God's Word and do what it says. And I can't guarantee you that over the next three days, if you'll do this, that everything in your life is going to be completely different. But I can guarantee you that after 30 days of doing this, you'll be more in tune with God than you are today. And some of you are really in tune with God. This can only help you. For some of us who we say, I've kind of drifted, give it a shot and just see what happens for 30 days, 30 minutes a day. And every time you do that, every time you read God's Word and you do what it says, you dig deeper into that bedrock, and you carve a little deeper into that cave, and you establish a more solid foundation. Let me give you just a couple of clarifications as we close. First of all, this isn't about perfection. This is not about perfection. This is not about 
losing your salvation if you sin. I, I, I became a Christian when I was eight years old. Every sin I remember committing has been as a Christian. I don't say that with any kind of pride. I just say it to, to say I thank God that he doesn't take it away from me just because I've messed up. God's love endures forever, the Bible says. And it says, those who are in his hands, nothing can take us out of his hand. Romans chapter 8 says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Once you are in God's hands, you've placed your trust in Jesus, nothing can take that away from you. Nothing at all. So this is not about perfection. This is not about carrying around guilt because, oh, I, I've sinned, I've messed up. Will God continue to forgive me? That, that, God is always ready to forgive. You're not somehow going to beat the system and take advantage of God. He's not worried about that. He loves you and he's going to forgive. So it's not about that. It's simply about moving toward Jesus instead of moving away from him. And some of us today just simply need to say, that's where I need to go. I need to move toward him. It's about drawing closer to him and having him draw close to us. It's, it's about giving him all of us and simply maybe coming back to him. So remember, it's not about perfection or losing your salvation or being fearful of that. And, and, and it's also another clarification just want you to make sure you understand is that this, this, this implies nothing that you can do to earn God's love or his salvation. This is all about after you have been brought into the kingdom, how then should I live? What should I do as a child of God? Not what can I do to become a child of God, because the Bible says there's only one thing you can do to become a child of God, and that is to repent, to turn away from your old life, and place your trust only in Jesus Christ. That's it. You can't do all of these things that are said in the Sermon on the Mount and say, I got it. That's it. Now God must love me. God loves you anyway. God loves you even when you turn your back on him. He loves you even when you run from him. The truth is, if you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ and turned from your sin, the Bible says that if you've never done that, then you will spend eternity apart from God in hell. And you say, well, I man, I don't want that to happen. What do I need to do? The Bible's clear. Repent. Turn away from the old life. Turn toward Jesus, believing in him as the Son of God who died for your sins and was raised again, and as the only way for salvation, the only one who de deserves to be in charge of your life, and then finally, commit yourself to Him. So you know what? I've, I've received your salvation. So, you know, I'm going to read your word. I'm going to do my best to do what it says. This stuff's really not that complicated. And so as we leave today, it's very simple. We have heard the words of Jesus over the last eight weeks. And Jesus says it's time to put them into practice. Know the word of God, do what it says. As we sing and play through a chorus, I know there may be some folks who would say, I need to spend a moment in prayer. Would you pray for me? I'd be happy to. I'll be standing right down here. You can feel free to come down that aisle and I'll pray for you. You may be a person who says, I want to know more about what it means to receive salvation. I'd be happy to talk with you about that, to pray with you. You may be a person who said, I just need to come back to Jesus. What can I do? I would encourage you before you leave today, spend some time with him in prayer and say, Lord, forgive me for where I failed you and I'm coming after you. I'm doing the best I can. And so before we leave today, make the commitment to know God's word and do what it says. 30 days, 30 minutes a day and every 30 minutes. See what you can do over the next 30 days. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. <clears throat> for the journey you've taken us on in the last eight weeks to understand the greatest sermon ever. Or may we be people who are not satisfied with just saying or just knowing, but may we be people who are intent on doing what you have said and on experiencing the life that you have promised.
and on loving you completely with all that we are. Thank you for loving us even in the midst of our failures and the times where we run away from you. God, we thank you so much for never leaving us, never forsaking us. That we turn back to you today or continue to take steps in your direction. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name.